G'day and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. I had hoped today that we could complete our series on Douglas Mawson and Antarctic exploration, recounting his leadership of the Australasian Antarctic expedition. But it was such a huge story all on its own. And there was just so much activity in Antarctica around the time of Mawson's expedition and soon after, which was wrapping up that heroic age of Antarctic exploration, that it just can't be done in one go, with the usual amount of detail that I like. So today we'll focus on Mawson and his foray, splitting that adventure into two episodes to cover all the relevant content. When those two are done, I'm going to record one final epilogue to the Mawson series, and I'll touch on the other momentous and fascinating activities going on during and after his Australasian Antarctic expedition. And from now on, I'm going to call that AAE. And we want to consider Mawson's legacy, particularly in relation to the future of Antarctica. When that's complete, it'll be onward into a new Australian history. Looking forward to that. So today, we'll focus on the AAE that he led himself, despite indicating that he had no desire to return to Antarctica after his adventures with Shackleton. But in time, he devised a scientific and exploratory program that would yield a great deal of information for Australia and the Commonwealth. He just needed to sell the idea and get an appropriate team down there under his direction. Let me remind you, as always, about the episode reference list, images, links and other material that I will place on the Australian Histories Podcast website, at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au and remember the histories is spelt I-E-S. Stay tuned at the end of this show for another great podcast recommendation too. Let me also thank those of you who generously supported the show recently and got in touch with much appreciated reviews and feedback. I cannot tell you how warm and fuzzy that makes me feel. Thanks so much. I'm really glad you're enjoying this journey with me. Okay, so now on with Mawson's adventures, and we're following directly on from last month's episode. When Edgeworth David and Douglas Mawson returned to Australia at the end of March in 1909, following the completion of Shackleton's Nimrod expedition, they were celebrated and recognised for their intrepid exploring and scientific achievements. When the celebrations finally settled, both of them went back to their previous lives and workplaces to write up and share all the discoveries and measurements they'd made, adding to the understanding of Antarctica. Mawson resumed his field trips into the outback areas of South Australia and New South Wales. As I mentioned briefly in the wrap-up last time, he was looking towards furthering his career and future research, even considering options overseas. In August of 1909, on a trip to Broken Hill, he had met the daughter of BHP's general manager, Francesca Delprat, known more commonly as Paquita. Paquita was born in England to her well-to-do Dutch parents, and she was still quite young, indeed nine years younger than the 27-year-old Mawson, but they hit it off straight away. Perkita had already seen him at an earlier function at the university, her family home being in Adelaide, and was immediately attracted to him. This time, at dinner in Broken Hill, she caught his eye. 
Mawson was a good-looking man, with what she described as a most attractive smile. And she was a stunning young woman herself, six foot tall, with long dark hair, but more importantly, she was intelligent and well-educated, particularly in the sciences, including geology, which was not very common for the day. So they had a lot to talk about. And though he had commitments which would take him to England in the coming months, a supportive and loving relationship between them would develop over time. He had other thoughts on his future direction churning too. Though he was still publicly denying any interest in returning to Antarctica, as his working life settled into a more mundane pattern, his desire to revisit the southern continent and undertake exploration of the massive coastal areas directly to the south of Australia, between Cape Adair and Gorsberg, grew. Later he wrote, quote, One of the oft-repeated questions for which I usually had a ready answer at the conclusion of Sir Ernest Shackleton's expedition was, Would you like to go to the Antarctic again? In the first flush of the welcome home, and for many months, during which the keen edge of pleasure under civilised conditions had not entirely worn away, I was inclined to reply with a somewhat emphatic negative. But once more a man of the world of men, lulled by the easy repose of routine and performing the ordinary duties of a workaday world, old emotions awakened. Unquote. Hall noted in his book that Mawson's emphasis was always on the science and discovery in Antarctica, rather than any of the triumph of the human spirit or glory-soaked landmark firsts. The area he wished to look at was at this time still almost entirely unexplored, and mapping the coast and exploring the land, particularly its geological makeup and relationship with Australia, would be of great scientific value. With its proximity directly to our south, he thought it made sense for a more local Australian and New Zealand team to survey and lay claim, on behalf of the Empire. So his idea for an Australasian Antarctic expedition began forming. Mawson later wrote a book largely covering the Australasian Antarctic expedition called The Home of the Blizzard, and I'll quote Mawson's own explanation as to what drew him to propose it. Quote, I was desirous that the expedition should be maintained by Australia. Here was an opportunity to prove that the young men of a young country could rise to those traditions which have made the history of British polar exploration one of triumphant endeavour. I have been using the hard copy of Home of the Blizzard for my research, but there is an online version of this book available free via Gutenberg Press, so I'll provide a link to that. While Mawson was pondering the likelihood and logistics of getting this scientific expedition off the ground, the British explorer Scott was also readying for another attempt at the Pole. In September of 1909, he announced it was his intention to return to the Antarctic, and this time lead the first successful party to the South Pole, for the glory of the British Empire. By December, Mawson was on his way to England to do some academic networking and family visits and some sightseeing, but he was most interested in discussing his ideas for scientific exploration with the British explorers and gauge their interest. He hoped to meet with Scott to discuss his recent announcement and also to make contact with Shackleton, as there was a matter of money to discuss there. He was still to be paid for his time on the Nimrod excursion. So, strapped for cash, 
Mawson was forced into second-class travel. I think he had a bit of a propensity for a little-class snobbery, so he wouldn't have been happy about that. But being the Aussie exploring legend, he was able to mix with a couple of professors he met on board from first class, and he learned from them that Scott had already been in communication with Professor David about his impending trip. This was good news for Mawson. He telegraphed Scott at the first opportunity to arrange a meeting on his arrival in England. Once again, with good timing and some positive words from his mentor David, Mawson might just see himself tagging along on the shirt tails of Scott's upcoming expedition, possibly solving the huge problem of funding and arranging his own transport. Scott knew all about Mawson's valuable contribution to Shackleton's expedition and of the high praise from David, so he was actually very keen to have Mawson join his team. Mawson's robust constitution in the cold, proved by his mammoth man-hauling effort previously, would suggest his high value to Scott's South Pole party. They could use good men to ensure their triumph, and with his good impression confirmed after meeting with Mawson in person, he pretty much offered him a two-year position at £800, and the honour of a place on the South Pole final assault party. But Scott was amazed to discover that Mawson was not actually very interested in the attempt on the pole. He explained that instead he was driven by the potential for science, discovery and the range of data that could be gathered from the world's largest blank canvas. He preferred to explore the uncharted areas and he asked instead if Scott could just land his party there to do the work while they pursued the pole. Scott had never really shown much interest in the scientific on his previous expeditions, but he did tell Mawson he'd consider his ideas. What he wanted, though, was to try and persuade Mawson into joining his pole attempt. So he suggested they confirm their options in a few weeks. When they did meet again, though Scott was very keen to have Mawson along, he felt his expedition would be fully committed in establishing bases at McMurdo Sound and King Edward Seventh Land, and explained he could not agree to landing Mawson's party at Cape Adair, as requested. But please, please join us in making for the pole, Mawson. Mawson was very disappointed, and he declined the offer, explaining he would need to look at raising his own expedition. Only then did Scott imply that, well, on his return from the pole, he did have an intention to look around Cape Adair himself. Scott was really trying to nab the moral high ground, sort of bagsing the area for himself, because he would be there first, and he was the bigger exploring fish. But this attempt at blocking him really needled Mawson. He did understand Scott's motivation, though, writing, quote, I quite agree that to do much would be to detract from his chances of the pole, and because of that I'm not pressing the matter any further. Certainly, I think he is missing the main possibilities of scientific work in the Antarctic by travelling over Shackleton's old route. However, he must beat the Yankees. <laughs> they thought the next to try would be Americans. But Scott would soon discover his competition would actually be the Norwegian, Roald Amundsen. But I think Scott was trying to string Mawson along, hoping that if he thought Scott's team might go to Cape Adair after the South Pole attempt, perhaps that might convince Mawson to join him. So he invited Mawson home to dinner with his very charismatic wife Kathleen. 
the kind of person who might be able to smooth the rough edges off his unhappy interaction with Mawson to date, and maybe help win him over. Indeed, Mawson and Kathleen Scott did develop a strong and respectful relationship, which continued on into the years ahead, despite Mawson not yielding to Scott, and going ahead with his own expedition plans in time. Scott's Terra Nova expedition left New Zealand for Antarctica in November of 1910. Mawson also met with Shackleton, who initially offered to help him raise funds for the AAE, suggesting at some point that he actually lead Mawson's project. And more interested in doing the work there than his own ego, he was quite prepared to yield leadership to Shackleton. After all, his pulling power would likely ensure more support anyway. Shackleton suggested he would be able to raise £70,000, but in the end, only a small amount of the promised funds ever made their way to Mawson. It seems that, as an Antarctic explorer, Shackleton was a focused leader who generally had the respect of his fellow expeditioners and was their warm and friendly teammate. His family motto, By Endurance We Conquer, personified how he's remembered by most today, and of course he was knighted after the Nimrod expedition, so his support carried a lot of cachet. But in business, he appeared quite undisciplined. He seemed always to owe money and was easily diverted into chasing the next best thing. Perhaps he was more suited to the single task of staying alive in a hostile and isolated environment than to the myriad distractions capitalism offered. <laughs> Actually, Hall puts it this way, quote, Ernest Shackleton excelled as an adventurer and adjusted his integrity as was necessary to achieve the adventuring goals. It seems that at the time Mawson was asking for help, Shackleton was focused on numerous dodgy investments rather than on heroic adventuring. So in the end, while his promised fundraising help didn't really materialise, Mawson continued on with his own fundraising and promotion efforts, Shackleton no longer keen to lead the venture. Hall's insight reminds us, though, that in promoting the Mm, sort of dull outcome of discovery and science, rather than the heroic and sexy goals that Shackleton and Scott aimed for, it was difficult for Mawson to spark the kind of public enthusiasm that would bring in the big dollars. And of course, with Scott also about to head off, there seemed to be a lot of explorers fundraising going on just then, so the competition was harsh. By mid-year 1910, though, Mawson was back in Australia and his venture was up and running. He described his proposal this way, slightly abridged, quote, An unknown coastline lay before the door of Australia. The chief object of the Australasian Antarctic expedition was to investigate the stretch of prospective but practically unknown Antarctic coast extending almost 2,000 miles in the east and west direction. That's between Cape Adair and Gorsberg. A new sphere west of the region visited by Scott and Shackleton. The program also included the scientific examination of Macquarie Island and extensive investigations of the ocean and its floor between Australia and the Antarctic. Unquote. His plans would require an ambitious four separate wintering bases. One would be on Macquarie Island, where they would set up a radio relay station in the hope they could relay messages from Antarctica to Australia. And this would be a huge advancement in itself. Each of the other three bases would have their own local scientific and surveying programs. 
and one team would also send a party out to resurvey the magnetic pole to determine how much it had moved since Mawson's own measurements three years prior. So it was a very substantial and demanding agenda. Quote, a provisional plan was drafted and put before the Australasian Association for the Advancement of Science at their meeting held in Sydney in January 1911 with a request for approval and financial assistance. Both were unanimously granted. Unquote. In his time with Shackleton, Mawson came to understand how those seemingly frivolous items, like the team's motor car or the printing press, for example, could actually increase the novelty and curiosity in their exploits, creating an interesting hook for media attention and funding from the public. On Kathleen Scott's advice, she being an aeroplane enthusiast herself, Mawson decided to take a monoplane with him to Antarctica. They hoped to undertake the first aerial exploration there. The Vickers plane also had its own pilot, and it was used at fundraising gatherings to bring in the crowds. Unfortunately, the plane was damaged before they could get it to Antarctica in a crash at a public display flight in Adelaide. Being too expensive to repair, they gave up on trying to fly it in Antarctica. But they took it along, without its wings, to be used as a tractor of sorts. No pilot required. While the funding was precarious, with some of the equipment loaned or on credit, Mawson continued gathering the rest of the requirements. With the help of his friend Davis, who he'd met on the Nimrod, they purchased a Newfoundland boat, the Aurora, and had it strengthened for the harsh Antarctic conditions. Davis would take charge of recruiting the sailing staff, loading the provisions from Europe and delivering the completed vessel to Hobart. One of the celebrities of the time who had taken an interest and offered her support was Anna Pavlova, a Russian ballet dancer. Before a large media gaggle, she wished the expedition luck and did the honours with the champagne across the ship's bow. Some sources said that Pavlova gave Mawson a more personal gift, a small gollywog doll, as a good luck mascot. And I was surprised to see it, or actually a replica, in Mawson's bed at the Mawson's Hut Museum in Hobart recently. Whether it brought them luck or not, we'll have to consider further. But I was told there by the people at the museum that they have done some further research and find that the gollywog actually belonged to Ninus and was his mascot. I'm told that there is a photograph with him holding it, which I will try and find. Either way, the Gollywog mascot did make it back to Australia with a lot of the other kit. Mawson's recruits for the expedition were largely young university graduates from Australia and New Zealand, perhaps reflecting his values and focus on the research and science he wanted undertaken, where Scott, for example, leaned towards military men, given his background. Hall describes Mawson needing to identify, quote, men with the spirit to endure firstly the worst ocean conditions on Earth, followed by the most inhospitable climate on Earth, much of it to be spent in the semi-darkness, unquote. <laughs> so, doesn't sound very attractive, does it? It's astounding how there were so many willing to volunteer. And of course, they all needed the appropriate, practical, scientific and technical knowledge to undertake the research programs as well as the physical and mental fitness and cooperative personalities required to endure the conditions together and succeed. 
Mawson was aware that the climatic conditions in Antarctica are, latitude for latitude, much more severe than the Arctic. So a cohesive and healthy, talented team was essential. The chosen expeditioners consisted of the Macquarie Island Party, that was George Ainsworth, the leader and a meteorologist, Leslie Blake, a geologist and cartographer, Harold Hamilton, a biologist, Charles Sandell, a wireless operator and mechanic, and Arthur Sawyer, a wireless operator. The main base party was Sir Douglas Mawson, the commander of the expedition, Lieutenant Robert Bage, astronomer, assistant magnetician and recorder of tides, <laughs> Cecil Madigan, a meteorologist, Lieutenant Belgrave Ninnis, in charge of the Greenland dogs, Dr Xavier Mertz, also responsible for the dogs, Dr Archie McLean, the chief medical officer and a bacteriologist, Frank Bickerton, in charge of the air tractor sledge, Alfred Hodgman, cartographer and sketch artist, Frank Hurley, official photographer, Eric Webb, chief magnetician, Percy Correll, mechanic and assistant physicist, John Hunter, a biologist, Charles Lazeron, taxidermist and biological collector, Frank Stilwell, a geologist, Herbert Murphy, in charge of the expedition stores, Walter Hannam, wireless operator and mechanic, John Close, assistant collector, and Dr. Leslie Wetter, surgeon. Sidney Jeffries, not initially recruited, joined the Cape Denison base from the boat later. There was a far western base party, led by Frank Wilde. Andrew Watson was the geologist, Dr. Sidney Jones the medical officer, Charles Harrison biologist, Morton Moyes meteorologist, Alexander Kennedy magnetician, Charles Hoadley geologist and George Dovers a cartographer. Frank Wilde, who would lead the isolated western base, was a proven performer in the conditions, being a veteran explorer and leader on both Scott's and Shackleton's previous visits. Mawson later noted that his return to Antarctica made Wilde the continent's oldest resident. I'm wondering though if he meant longest, if you were to add up the time he'd spent over the several visits. He was only 38, though I suppose in a young team I guess he could have been the oldest, maybe the oldest amongst Mawson's expedition. Anyway, I'm not quite clear what his meaning was there. Wilde's team to be landed last, far to the west, towards Gorsberg, that's relatively near the site of the present-day Davis station. They were to make meteorological and scientific observations that would be compared with Cape Denison and Macquarie Island, and to survey and explore as much of the coast and interior as possible. They were also to try and set up a radio station there at their remote site. Some expeditioners' names were more well-known than others, or would become more well-known. Most were Australian, but some, like Wilde, Davis, Ninnis, Bickerton and Mertz, travelled from Europe, and Webb and Wetter arrived from New Zealand. Bickerton had volunteered to join Mawson while he was in London, and Mawson took him on as a mechanical engineer charged with looking after the Vickers plane engine, which, after it's damaged, would be used as an air tractor. And so he would lead the party which intended to use it to haul once they were in Antarctica. Xavier Mertz was a Swiss explorer, a champion skier and a scientist with an interest in glacier and mountain formation, like Mawson himself. So while he had some experience in the very cold, unlike most Australians, skiing and mountain climbing in the Swiss Alps, he had no prior polar experience. 
He volunteered in London, telling Mawson he thought skis could assist the teams in undertaking their exploring, and he suggested he was the man to teach them. Initially employed as a geologist and the ski instructor, he was also given the task of looking after the 49 Greenland Huskies that they would bring with them. As it turned out, the weather was so consistently appalling that not much skiing practice was achieved, and in good weather, much time needed to be spent training and practicing with the dog teams in preparation for their summer trips. The other European who signed up in London was Belgrave Ninnis, a British military officer and son of a British Arctic explorer, also Belgrave Ninnis. His cousin Aubrey Ninnis accompanied Shackleton on a later expedition, so the cold and danger did not seem to daunt this family. And don't you just love the names? I've never been lucky enough to meet a Belgrave yet. Ninnis was also charged with caring for the dogs, and he and Mertz became very close during the winter, working with the animals. Lazeron recorded, quote, During the winter months we had all been drawn together, but between Mertz and Ninnis there existed a very deep bond. Mertz, in his warm-hearted, impulsive way, had practically adopted Ninnis, and his affection was almost maternal. Ninnis, less demonstrative, reciprocated this to the full, and indeed it was hard to disassociate them in our thoughts. It was always Mertz and Ninnis, or Ninnis and Mertz, a composite entity, each the complement of the other. Another later-to-be-famous name was Frank Hurley, the expedition photographer. Apparently Hurley was so keen on the venture that he bribed a railway conductor so that he could share a railway cabin with Mawson and plead his cause and show his references. And that bold initiative did impress Mawson. Hurley's mother, though, was less keen on his adventuring. Apparently she wrote a letter to Mawson saying her boy Frank had an internal complaint that meant he was not strong enough for the position. Lung trouble. And then she asked that Mawson not mention her letter to her son. (laughs) Good try, Mum. Mawson had him take a medical examination, and when that was clear, he let him come along. Poor Mrs Hurley. Hurley, of course, took some brilliant and now very well-known images during the Australasian Antarctic expedition. And he went on to a stellar career as a photographer, making a number of later visits to work again in the Antarctic. And of course, he was well known also for documenting both world wars. So his ongoing work would have continued to worry his mother. He was innovative and artistic, frequently staging what looked like natural shots to great effect. And he was known for creating impressive composite images in a pre-Photoshop era. One of my favourite images, and there are many, is a less dramatic one, a charming picture of a man greeting a penguin. I'll put it on the website. Frank Hurley would be a fascinating character to look at in an episode all of his own one day. Mawson and Peter became engaged before his impending departure, but they decided to delay their marriage until his return. Though she must have been anxious and sorry about their time apart, she was very supportive of the venture, and they spent much of their time talking about the plans and going over the endless lists together. Hall quotes her noting, Such lists they were! Approximately 16 tonnes of food for a party of 12 men wintering for a year. This was to be supplemented by fresh penguin eggs and seal meat, vegetables, cereals, dried fruit and jam. Milk, butter, cheese, and soaps, pickles, tea and coffee, etc. 
this list being for only one of the bases. Now I'm a little disturbed that soaps made it in amongst the food requirements there, but let's face it, if you're committed to eating seal meat and penguin eggs, soap was probably a perfectly good accompaniment. <laughs> Imagine how hard putting all this together must have been. In the days before online ordering and phone confirmation for delivery, managing the logistics must have just been a nightmare. Along with the federal government funding, several states also contributed and both the Tasmanian Governor and the Premier were present to see off the Aurora on December 2nd, 1911 for their expected 18-month foray. A smaller steamboat, the Tarora, would follow soon afterwards with some of the expeditioners and extra supplies, meeting up with the main party at their first stop on Macquarie Island. Again, the Southern Ocean showed its strength and those poor new chums were to get an immediate taste of the future conditions, experiencing gale-force seas for days just after leaving Tassie. Though it didn't seem to worry Hurley, who took his camera and the movie camera up into the rigging to capture the raging seas. Fortunately, things improved and they arrived at Macquarie Island nine days later, where they searched for the best wintering place. While the team explored Caroline Cove in the south, Hurley photographed the wildlife there. At their second landfall point in the island's north, they were surprised to encounter some sealers who'd been stranded there for a month when their boat foundered. They'd set themselves up and continued processing the oil that they'd come for, but they were really glad to see the explorers. When Hurley discovered he'd left an important lens back at their first site, one of the sealers acted as their guide, leading Hurley and Harrison on a five-day return hike overland to retrieve it. The livestock was unloaded to rest and graze while the Macquarie Island party decided on the hut site and their gear was then unloaded from the Tarora. When the Tarora turned for home, the sealers paid the expedition to carry them and their seal oil back too, offsetting the cost of the boat for Mawson, so it's win-win all round you might say. Their first go at setting up a prefabricated hut and the wireless equipment would be a good experience for all the novices, particularly because the ongoing teams could expect conditions on the continent to be much more challenging. Any practice would be good. The wireless antenna was to be placed on the highest point and fortunately the sealers had already rigged up a pulley come flying fox of sorts and this was strengthened and used to haul the timbers to sight. In about two weeks, once the team's essentials had been unloaded and the major construction completed, the main party loaded up water, their stock and gear, and they headed off, on Christmas Day actually, 1911, to find suitable wintering sites on the Antarctic Territory. The Aurora set off towards Cape Adair, but they had difficulty landing along the coast, with thick pack ice blocking their way, and they were forced to continue westerly until a suitable site could be found. It was not until Cape Denison, at the head of Commonwealth Bay, that the boat could get close enough to the shore and that Mawson thought safe enough to set up a wintering site. It was an accessible rocky peninsula rather than ice and while there would be some difficulty ferrying provisions from the boat to the site, he considered that it was the most reliable option that they'd seen. He did not want to venture further west, having missed an opportunity to place a team at that far eastern end already so he modified his plans and consolidated the proposed eastern party in with the Cape Denison site, effectively rolling the two sites into one. They would have to winter there together 
and the teams achieve as much as they could venturing out from there in spring. Having made their decision, they began ferrying supplies across to the land, and soon they experienced their first blizzard, retreating to shelter, but not before Hoadley was the first to suffer frostbite on his fingers. The chosen site may have looked good, but what Mawson didn't know was that he was setting up the main camp on what would be recorded as, and remains, the windiest place on earth. They were expecting to stay for just over one year, but for safety, two years' supplies had to be ferried across to the chosen hut site. This included food, the huts, fuel, tools, wireless mast and equipment, scientific and photographic equipment, the sledges, trekking equipment, personal effects, as well as the livestock, dogs, the air tractor and 23 tonnes of coal. With interruptions due to bad weather, the unloading was not completed until January 19th, so finding the site west for Wild's team was delayed. Once unloaded, the Aurora then took Wild's party to locate a site for the last camp there. This was also a challenging task, as the areas were largely uncharted, so Davis was really up against it. They explored a few of the ice shelves to consider stability for making camp, but by early February they were running out of time. Wilde decided to risk setting up on the Shackleton Ice Shelf, which is more than 1,800 kilometres from Cape Denison. It seemed their only opportunity, or forfeit the Western Camp altogether, with so little summer left. Davis was unhappy about Wilde's decision, considering it unsafe, and so he had him write a letter noting his objection and absolving him of any responsibility for leaving the eight men on the glacier. He was concerned their camp might just break off from the shelf, leaving them floating on an iceberg. But with the decision made, they unloaded all the gear, and the Aurora was ready on the 21st to make its way back to Hobart through the iceberg-laden waters. Meanwhile, Mawson's team at Cape Denison carted their provisions 300 metres from the boat harbour to the hut site and began construction. With the two intended groups now one large one, Mawson joined the two huts together, giving them the luxury of a large workshop and storeroom adjoining their living area, though there was still going to be plenty of hardship and discomfort. I recently visited the replica hut in Hobart, and it was a brilliant display, certainly well worth a visit if you're there at some point. The volunteers on the morning we called in were both enthusiastic and very knowledgeable. While there were stoves for both rooms, the radio equipment being in the workshop, we were told that the heating target was a, around a bracing 6 degrees Celsius. Enough to keep the frostbite at bay perhaps, but not exactly cosy. It's 12 degrees as I write this today, and I can tell you I need the room temperature higher than that to function. I guess cranking up their heat any further would have seen their limited and life-supporting coal supply evaporate. Though I read they also used blubber in the hut fires, which really got the fires revved up and the stoves glowing. So I guess they made use of all parts of the animals they butchered, at least. I'm going to put a floor plan from the museum on the webpage if you're interested. Compared to images I've seen of Shackleton's hut, it seemed very roomy, but of course the replica was not filled with 18 smelly men smoking and working and all their personal gear and equipment around them. Though, actually, there was quite a lot of appropriate items hanging in there to give a good idea of the conditions. 
Some items were replica, but some were original from the old hut, including Mawson's original Faber travelling organ, and that replica, Gollywog doll, the original of which is in Adelaide with Mawson's archive, I believe. Mawson's actual hut survives at Cape Denison, and thankfully, in the last decades, its historical importance has been recognised and conservation has taken place. But most of us will not get to see that. So the replica hut in Hobart is a superb option, complete with recorded howling wind noises and well worth the visit. Construction of the building in the cold and wind and living in tents as your first experience of Antarctica would have been a shock to the system, though they did report being happy and excited. But there were lots of challenges for members of the expedition, not least the following. Hall notes in his book that in order to blast holes for the building's foundations, they used dynamite, which, in order to work, had to be pre-warmed in someone's pocket. Oh, good Lord. He recounts one incident where Bickerton was sitting on the rooftop while installing a chimney pipe. Inside, Mertz was nailing up the ceiling boards. One nail missed the roof beam and instead fastened Bickerton's bottom to the roof. How? <laughs> he quotes Mawson recording laconically, Individuals sitting on the roof were sometimes observed to start up suddenly and temporarily lose interest in the work. <laughs> so no Oc Health and Safety review going on there then. Another potentially dangerous incident resulted from a case going overboard when being unloaded. At first they thought they would just do without it. But later they discovered some of the crucial parts for the stove were missing and they surmised they must have been in that sunken crate. After trying and failing to bring it up with hooks and other improvised devices, Mawson stripped off and jumped into the literally freezing water to drag it up to the surface in double time. He claimed he then established a new record time for dressing himself. I'll bet he did. <laughs> I believe today there is still a tradition of a midwinter dip into the icy waters as part of a bigger celebration to mark the solstice. I'll put a link to a story with video from the Casey station from 2018. I especially liked seeing them cutting the pool into the ice with chainsaws. The article says the celebrations include a feast, exchange of handmade gifts, midwinter play and messages from home after the dip. With the temperature hovering around minus 22 degrees and the water temperature nearly minus 2, this cannot be a pleasant experience. <laughs> but at least the crazy people completing that little feat these days return to a hut that's a lot warmer than 6 degrees. Though of course at the time Mawson dived in, the stove wasn't even working, with the parts missing, one assumes, so it would have been only ambient temperature inside even if he had retreated there. Anyway, needs must. They discovered after his effort that the crate contained only jam, but fortunately they did find the stove parts elsewhere. So apart from a nail to the buttock, they got through the process relatively unscathed, all things considered, and the hut was finished and christened on January the 30th. They held a ceremony to hoist the Union Jack and claim this region of Antarctica for King and British Empire, followed by a celebratory meal in their cosy hut. Mawson's hut afforded him a separate room around two metres square, positively salubrious. 
with the other bunk spaces around the walls on either side. The kitchen was along the opposite wall and seating and tables in the centre. They had the stove for cooking and heating and one in the workroom, which had the wireless and petrol generator, a lathe and other workbenches and a separate latrine. The main room also contained an acetylene generator for lighting. As I said, I'll put the floor plan on the webpage, but with its little closet to the side of the kitchen for a photographic dark room and enclosed verandas all around and the stacked crates outside giving additional shelter, it would still have been squeezy for the many men and their equipment, as far as a confined space through the winter goes, but would have been a much improved living space compared to the Nimrod Expedition's hut. This was fortunate, as they had pitched up on the windiest place on an already unforgiving continent, and they spent more forced time indoors than previous expeditioners. The title of Mawson's book, Home of the Blizzard, was no exaggeration. Though conditions were fierce, they set up their wireless antennas and a good deal of meteorological equipment. The wind measuring anemometer would have had a constant workout. The atrocious weather foiled Mawson's plans to get supply depots out before winter, in preparation for the spring exploration programs. And it was early March before they really got a break. They placed marker flags to assist in sighting their paths during blizzards. I note even now Antarctic workers have rope lines in place to cling to and follow when making their way between buildings in high winds or low visibility. I'll post a link to some recent footage showing that. They call them blizz lines. The gales are certainly capable of blowing a person down and along the surface. Mawson, from his previous experience, noted early that the weather conditions at their hut were much worse than at Ross Island. The local terrain there and seawater all contributed to ensure that conditions were consistently awful. It allowed the wind to howl along and rise up, creating freezing catabatic winds, and it was not unusual to experience weeks recording above 100 km hour winds. The dogs, housed in the veranda areas, would be pretty consistent noisemakers, but the howling of the blizzards would have been truly epic. The wireless was completed, though, and they managed to transmit to Macquarie Island, though they could not receive. So they were unaware of their landmark success, producing the first radio signal from Antarctica. That's quite a feat when it was only a decade before, in 1902, that Marconi showed the possibilities of the radio. Later, they managed to transmit meteorological data from Macquarie and Commonwealth Bay to the Bureau of Meteorology in Melbourne. That would have been very valuable early data in considering the impact of the southern continent on Victorian weather. Snowdrifts blew up against the hut to such an extent that they had to dig tunnels in from the clearer corners, and at times they had to exit through a hatch in the roof. But they seemed to winter pretty well, undertaking the usual social activities in between their chores and scientific work. One repugnant experiment that Mawson undertook was to measure the oil produced from blubber, calculating the potential resource in the penguins, seals and whales, which would have been of great interest to some of his sponsors. The dogs also had tunnels to allow for extra movement and had to be sheltered around the hut and exercised every day that weather permitted. The dogs provided other services than just hauling sledges. Several sources recount a story about the food storage area, effectively a freezer really under the hut. While it was a good place for storage, retrieving meat from there was a difficult task 
owing to the lack of space. The Storm and Murphy preferred not to crawl under there himself and devised an excellent alternative way to get the provisions from the store. He would send a dog through the hatch and when it dragged out a penguin carcass to feast on, Murphy would relieve the dog of its prize and deliver it to the cook instead. No doubt the dogs got wiser and one day when the chosen dog fetched out one of the rare sides of mutton they'd brought from the mainland, he managed to drag it past Murphy and outside where the members of the team chased him around for about an hour to try and retrieve the prized meat before they gave up. Needless to say, Murphy had to undertake the retrieval chore himself after that sacrifice to the dogs. So they began the preparations that would be required for the various substantial treks and local exploring. With only limited chance to venture out, they knew very little about the extended area they would need to travel through for the major treks in spring and summer. Though Mawson had noted the terrain had clearly been covered by a glacial ice sheet, now retreated, so at least the geology was right up his alley. In August, they began taking the provisions out to the depots, using the dog teams. Later, they began using the air tractor to haul as well, though not with great success. In September, they undertook three journeys, giving everyone practice sledging with the dogs, but on at least one occasion, the high winds damaged their tents. They made ice caves at the depot points, and these caves proved more reliable shelter than the tents. The arrival of the Adelie penguins mid-October for their breeding season indicated the approaching summer, and so the sledging parties were readied for major trips. According to Mawson's book, a southern party, composed of Bag, the leader, Webb and Hurley, was to make magnetic observations in the vicinity of the South Magnetic Pole. A southern supporting party, including Murphy, the leader, Hunter and Lazeron, were to accompany the southern party as far as possible, returning to winter quarters at the end of November. A western party of three men, Bickerton, the leader, Hodgman and Wetter, were to traverse the coastal highlands west of the hut, their intention was to make use of the air tractor sledge and the departure of the party was fixed for early December. Stilwell, in charge of the Near East Party, was to map the coastline between Cape Denison and the Mertz Glacier Tongue, dividing the work into two stages. In the first instance, Close and Hodgman were to assist him, all three acting partly as supports to the other eastern parties working further afield. After returning to the hut at the end of November for a further supply of stores, he was to set out again with Close and Lazeron in order to complete the work. An eastern coastal party composed of Madigan, the leader, McLean and Correll was to start in early November with the object of investigating the coastline beyond the Mertz Glacier. This team almost faltered on their way back, having failed to pace their travel and food reliably. Fortunately, Madigan was successful in making a 10-hour solo push to a depot to bring food back to the others, allowing them to recover and return as soon as the weather abated. So that was a close thing, probably down to their inexperience. And what a champion Madigan was. That was probably a very lucky outcome, really. And finally, there was to be a far eastern party. Mawson would lead Ninnis and Mertz, using the dogs, and would push out rapidly overland to the south of Madigan's party, mapping more distant sections of the coastline. So it looked pretty busy and complicated, but, the close shave of Madigan's party noted, all the teams arrived back at Cape Denison Hut within three days of their expected deadlines.
except Mawson's Far Eastern Party. Mawson, Mertz and Ninnis were going to undertake the most ambitious and distant trek, out past Cape Freshfield on the eastern side of King George V land, if they could. They had the dogs and Mawson's experience, but their delay was a concern to everybody. So now we must take a break in the story here. Mawson had set up the scientific program and his Cape Denison teams had undertaken their planned exploration with great success. All but his own team had returned to the safety of the hut and they began preparing for the arrival of the Aurora and their return to civilization. As the days passed, Mawson's failure to return was making everyone anxious and by mid-January there was real concern. Next episode, we'll continue on with this story and let you know what Mawson and his party were experiencing. I'll include now my podcast recommendation for this month for those with an interest in historical biography. It's called Giants of History. I've listened to several topics in the series and I particularly enjoyed the Cleopatra episodes and Galileo and now Churchill. Their About statement says... Giants of History is a podcast that explores the life stories of history's most fascinating figures. In each episode, we strive to curate and present the most interesting details from each story so that the subject themselves come back to life for the listener. I'll put a link to it on my page and you can have a look. Remember, there are lots of maps, illustrations and the reading list links there too for this episode at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. As ever, thanks for listening and hopefully for encouraging others to discover the Australian Histories podcast and subscribing too. Don't forget to subscribe yourself if you've not done so already, and leave a lovely review on iTunes or your preferred podcatcher about the last episode that you enjoyed. So have a safe and happy few weeks. I'll talk to you again next month to see what was going on for Mawson while the others were arriving back at the hut. Cheers now.